<clears throat> sorry, I'm a, I'm a little bit like I uh, I did a a 20 minute um, threshold test on the bike this morning, and I'm my Ooh. lungs are still sore from it. I, it. Those never get good. Like they're never fun to do. No matter how how nope. well practiced you get at them, they're always kind of they always kind of suck. Oh, by the way, feel free to swear if, if that's something that you do. <laughs> oh, okay, swear. okay, cool. Hi everyone, I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hey everyone, and uh, welcome back to Endurance Innovation. Joining us today is Dr. Amy Bender, a uh, sleep expert who we've been after for actually quite some time, uh, partially based on my own interest in the in the field, but also um, following some requests from our our listeners and our supporters. And uh, sleep is a subject that I'm always well, harping on, I suppose, with uh, with folks that I work with as a coach, uh, as probably the most important element of your training. And uh, we really did need to get uh, an expert on the show. So I'm excited to have Dr. Bender joining us. For those of you who are not familiar with her, she is a senior research scientist at the Calgary Counseling Center and an adjunct assistant professor of kinesiology at the University of Calgary. She received her PhD and Master of Science in Experimental Psychology from Washington State, specializing in sleep EEG. She has helped develop the only validated screening tool for athletes, which I actually use in my coaching practice. So thank you, Amy, for that. And has implemented sleep optimization strategies for numerous Canadian Olympic and professional teams. Her current interests focus on how sleep and exercise interventions can improve mental health outcomes. Uh, she was a former college basketball athlete. She's done an Ironman and currently chases her three young kids around, which is something I know a little bit about myself. Dr. Bender, thank you very much for coming on the show and uh, agreeing to spend a bit of time with us. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. And to all our listeners, uh, I just want to say this is an episode you won't want to sleep through. <laughs> <laughs> so apologies oh, in Andrew, advance. I, I might, you know what? So, so listeners, before we started this episode, we, we told uh, Dr. Bender, as we do with all our guests, that we'll, we edit out anything that they uh, they want to roll back, and Andrew may choose to roll back that pun. Um, <laughs> no, I stand by it. <laughs> okay. No napping on the show. You got to pay attention. Exactly. Right. Uh, so I I think um, I think Amy, the, probably what makes the most the most sense as a starting point is just a, a quick discussion of the importance of sleep to uh, well to everybody, but specifically you know given our audience specifically to endurance athletes. And I think this is something that folks are really are starting to understand. But uh, having an expert tell them one more time never hurts. So please, if you can do that, absolutely yes. Um, well, we know sleep is really important for overall health. Um, it's one of the pillars of health, so along with exercise and diet. Um, personally, I think it's the foundation because sleep impacts your nutrition choices, how you metabolize food, um, your ability to exercise. Uh, so, you know, being the sleep scientist, I'm a little bit biased there. But uh, there are there are a lot of associations with poor sleep, uh, both sleep loss as well as too much sleep and different health conditions 
For example, um, you're at an increased risk for diabetes, Alzheimer's disease, cardiovascular disease, cancer, obesity, um, you know, with, with these different sleep problems that you might have. And I'm talking chronic, chronic sleep loss and chronic um, getting too much sleep can be associated with these disorders. And when we look at even if you just look at after daylight saving time, when we lose an hour of sleep, we, mm-hmm. we see a 24% increase in heart attacks. So um, just an hour of sleep loss, um, also associated with kind of a misalignment in our circadian rhythms as well. Uh, we do see a 24% increase in heart attacks after we lose that hour of sleep. Wow. Now, when yeah, when it when it comes to athletes, um, you know, sleep impacts reaction time, decision making, injury risk. So those who are um, not getting enough sleep are more prone to injury risk, and also you know, immunity in general can affect everyone. Um, but sleep in particular does impact immunity, and you want to be on the court, you want to be on the field, you know, you want to be training and competing. Um, so that that's important as well. When I hear you talk about all of this stuff, I think about some, you know, uh, scrolling through my social media feed and you, you see ads for supplements that will make you a superhuman in every you know possible way. They'll make you smarter, faster, stronger. Uh, it sounds like, you know, sleep is the real deal when it comes to these things. The, the list of uh, possible complications or, or negative health outcomes that you just listed from you know, uh, impaired sleep or chronic impaired sleep, at least, uh, you know, it, the, the inverse of that, I imagine would be, is if you get sufficient sleep on a regular basis, then you are at a lower risk for all of those things. Plus you'll have, you know, the, the, <laughs> the health benefits that come with it. Absolutely. Uh, one of my slides that I present actually is it's riddle of the day. And it's like, this vitamin has been proven to improve mood, decision-making, increase energy, reduce injury risk, repair tissues, enhance hormone function, you know, and it costs nothing and it's yeah. freely available. What is it? And I've had people, um, they'll say like vitamin D or something, you know, I, I'm yeah. giving it to like a, a nutrition group and, um, but it's vitamin Z, you know, it's, it's sleep. It, it helps with all these important functions. I like the, uh, I like the pun roll that we're on right now. So let's, let's keep that one going. <laughs> and I think I've heard the same argument for exercise as well. And I think sleep falls into this category. But if a company were to bottle it up and sell it, um, it would be worth billions and billions of dollars. But uh, the fact that it's free to everyone and exercise is free to everyone, like there's this health benefit just waiting in the wings for you to take advantage of. Mm-hmm. Yes. And people, they, you know, they kind of want the easy way out. They, they ask about what supplements can I take to improve my sleep? And, you know, it's, it's just about doing the work and prioritizing it. Um, it's not easy, but uh, it's, it's right there for you, freely available. So let's dive right into the the recommendations, at least what the the you know what is supported by evidence. Um, and I want to split this this discussion up into quantity and quality. Uh, let's start with the you know the more easily <laughs> measurable of the two. How much sleep do we need? Um, and assuming we're adult athletes, what should we be shooting for? We should be shooting for a minimum of seven hours. So the range is between seven and nine hours. Okay. 
Um, personally, I think, and it depends on the training load as well. So we generally think that the higher the training load, the more sleep that you need to be able to recover from the demands of the sport, potentially uh, physical and mental demands. So seven is the absolute minimum. And that doesn't mean, you know, you go to bed at midnight and wake up at seven. There's still, it takes time to fall asleep. You wake up during the middle of the night. So you have to take that into consideration as well. Mm. Um, increasing your time in bed to, able, to be able to meet that minimum. Um, but honestly, we see with athletes in general, and in particular, the studies have been in more college-age athletes, the more sleep that they can get, the better that they perform. So they have quicker reaction times, they have faster sprint times, they have better shooting percentage, like free throw shooting percentage. Um, and these athletes were getting less than seven coming into this study, and then almost increased their sleep by two hours and they saw these amazing benefits. So seven would be the minimum, but um, honestly, I think if you're a high performer, you want to do well, um, you want to aim for more than that, maybe like eight to 10. So at some point there's going to be a limit to how much this can benefit you. Is there a maximum amount of sleep that you would want to get? That's a great question. Um, what we see, so with the sleep extension study, that Stanford basketball study that I was talking about, they, they did this sleep extension period where they told the athletes to be in bed for 10 hours. And they did this for, I believe it was like six to eight weeks and found these amazing benefits. Um, and of course they weren't sleeping 10 hours, you know, it was right around eight and a half or so the amount of sleep that they were getting. Um, so I think, yeah, I think that your body kind of naturally regulates that a little bit. So there is a max, you know, if I'm, if I'm in bed for 12 hours, you know, there's no way that I'm going to sleep up to that amount. And what we start to see in, with mental health. So I've been doing a lot of work looking at depression and the amount of sleep people are getting. And we find that, you know, seven and a half hours is right at that sweet spot. So it's associated with the lowest levels of depression. Um, but once we get, you know, below six and a half and we get uh, above nine hours, we start to see higher rates of depression as well. So hmm. there is, there are associations, as I mentioned previously, previously with a lot of amount of sleep and um, mood disturbance or even mortality and health problems. But then I think it's more, there's probably some underlying conditions going on where if someone's sleeping, you know, 11 hours a day, there's probably something, some underlying health condition that's going on that then makes them more prone to those um, potential disorders or health problems. So just, uh, I, I want to dig into this a little bit, but regarding depression, if someone is getting extra sleep, is it because they're depressed that they're getting extra sleep or are they feeling depressed because they're getting extra sleep? Like which direction does that, that cause go? It's actually, it's bi-directional at this point. So it can, um, getting a lot of sleep can 
be the reason for the depression and vice versa. Um, so sleep disturbances can cause mental health problems, but then mental health problems independently are associated with sleep problems. So something like 95% of mental health problems um, are associated with a sleep disturbance. So there's some kind of um, sleep disturbance going on with those mental health, mental health disorders, but it's, it's unclear. And I think it's bi-directional kind of which way that's going. And yeah, my, my last question on oversleeping is actually, um, I've noticed sometimes like when I do get an exceptionally long sleep, I wake up actually feeling more tired than I would if I woke up earlier. And that kind of persists throughout the day a little bit. And it's just this grogginess that almost goes with it. Is there like, am, am I alone in feeling this? Is there a reason that people often feel this way? I've actually wondered that myself, and I don't think that there's really any clear research that indicates why that's the case. Um, but yes, there is anecdotal evidence that people who sleep in longer have reports of, you know, being less alert throughout the day, more groggy. Um, and I think part of that has to do with the consistency of the sleep schedule. So if I'm regularly, you know, going to bed relatively this, at the same time, waking up generally at the same time, when I, when I offset that by an hour or two, it's like your body doesn't, your body is kind of released. We have our circadian rhythm that's regulating our body clocks. And it's like releasing cortisol and releasing these hormones as to when we should have woken up. Um, but then when we sleep in later, it's like kind of a confusion as to am I awake or am I asleep type of thing. But yeah, I think that's a great question. And we don't really know what, what, what might be going on there. Yeah, that's, that's quite interesting. Um, so, but I think that the main takeaway there is that, uh, you know, if we normally fall asleep at say 10 o'clock in the evening, uh, and on a weekend, you want to go out and party every weekend and stay up until 4am, that's not going to do you any favors in terms of establishing a circadian rhythm that's consistent. Yes. And the key, the key, um, if you had to take if you had to prefer bedtime versus wake time when it comes to consistency, we want to keep the wake time consistent. So that's more important than keeping the bedtime consistent, although, you know, both are relatively important. Um, but life happens, you know, you want to hang out with your friends, you want to party, whatever. Um, so keeping that wake time consistent is, is a lot more important than, you know, keeping your bedtime consistent. And the reason for that, it just kind of, that light, light helps regulate our circadian rhythm. So if I'm in a dark room and, um, you know, I have eye shades on, et cetera, it's like, I'm not getting the cues from the environment. And so having that consistent wake time, having that consistent light exposure is helping kind of regulate our circadian rhythms, keeping us alert when we should be and helping us get sleepy when we should be. So so yeah, that's really important. Um, there was a study actually that showed, so keeping in line with the consistency theme, um, that they looked at college students and they analyzed how consistent their sleep schedule was. And so they had a group of really consistent sleepers versus the inconsistent sleepers. And they found that the inconsistent sleepers 
despite getting equal amounts of sleep as the consistent sleepers, actually had melatonin dysregulation. They um, got poor grades. They got worse sleep quality. So, so consistency is a really important factor when it comes to optimizing your sleep. Having little kids helps with that, I suppose, right? Yeah, exactly. My my three-year-old woke me up at uh, 6 a.m. this morning, just bright-eyed, and um, I, I I really don't need an alarm clock. I have him to wake me up. <laughs> yeah, I'm in the I'm in the same boat. Uh, sticking with sticking with sleep duration, how do naps figure into that overall picture? Are they effective? Are they a waste of your time? I mean, I love a good nap, and I find that in order to get even close to eight hours with my two kids and my schedule and school closures, especially, um, that, that nap is essential for me. Naps are great. I love naps as well. And it's, it's a huge area that I think athletes don't take advantage of. So in our, in our work, we, we found only about 20% were napping greater than two times per week in the Canadian national team athletes that we were studying. And, uh, you know, 80% simply were not napping enough. And I think people should schedule it in as a part of their training. And it doesn't have to be an elaborate, you know, 90-minute nap. Even just a 20-minute nap, that power nap, where we're not getting into the deeper stages of sleep, is still going to provide benefits for productivity, um, alertness, mood, you know, so absolutely, I think people should take advantage of napping and schedule it in as a part of their training. And it adds up across the week. So it's, um, I like to think of sleep as uh, across the week. And of course, we want to keep our schedule as consistent as possible, but adding in a nap. So if I get a poor night's sleep, keeping that wake time consistent and then adding in a nap later in the afternoon to kind of make up for some of that lost sleep is really important. Um, I think the timing of the nap is important as well. So having a nap between potentially noon and 4 PM, we don't want it too close to bedtime, you know, cause then we may be impacting our ability to fall asleep and then having a, um, you know, a cool, dark and quiet, like a cave-like environment if possible. Um, but even <laughs> when I was in graduate school, I would go out to my car and nap in my car, you know, so. Car naps um, are the I was, best. <laughs> I was pregnant, <laughs> so I was overly tired. Um, so that was kind of the main reason. But I think anywhere you can get it and any amount of time, even 10 minutes is going to be really useful for people. So we have one athlete who's a really good friend of ours, Cody Beals, and uh, he has always sworn by taking naps. Like he sets out time every day to make sure he takes a nap. And I think, I mean, he's had excellent performance in the, in the past. Um, so maybe this is a big part of it. Certainly. Yes. There's many, many athletes, um, who are, are really good nappers and are amazing athletes. And even, even those who potentially add in the naps who don't normally nap, like I was working with a speed skater who was preparing for the Olympics and he, he wasn't a napper. And we, I took a look at his schedule. We kind of tried to add in about 30 minutes more of sleep per night. And then we added in the naps as well. And um, he ended up doing really, really well by having just that little extra amount of sleep during the day. 
I think I'm going to add this to my schedule, uh, a daily nap so that uh, everyone at work knows not to bother. <laughs> <laughs> I strongly recommend it, Andrew. Yes, um, yes. Dr. Bender, you, you talked about uh, short naps versus long naps. I, I want you to spend a little bit of more, a little bit of time talking about it just because uh, I can't remember where I heard this anymore, but uh, I remember either reading or, or hearing that you you should either take a very short nap, like what you said, you know, 10, 20 minutes or something that is 90 minutes or longer. Um, is there evidence to support this? And, and why is that the case? Well, we... If you take more of the, let's say, 40 to an hour, you're getting into the deeper stages of sleep. Um, Personally, I recommend that shorter nap, the power nap, under 20 minutes, under 30 minutes. And then Mm -hmm. potentially, if you have a longer opportunity, take more of a full cycle sleep nap, um, full cycle nap, where you're getting into all the stages of sleep. You're getting stage one, um, stage two, then you're getting into the deepest stage of sleep, stage three, where growth hormones being released, tissues are being repaired. And then you get into REM sleep approximately 90 to 110 minutes. You know, so you're getting some of the benefits of that stage as well. Um, But if you have the reason for this is that when you wake up in REM, you're not as groggy as when you're waking up during the deepest stage of sleep. Huh. So if you're taking more of a 45-minute nap, it's likely that you're going to wake up during that deepest stage of sleep, um, which can take some time to wear off. So you have sleep inertia where you're just groggy, you know, um, trying to gain alertness, et cetera, but it, it can take, you know, up to 90, 90 minutes to two hours for that sleep inertia to wake up, uh, to burn off. So that's why I would generally recommend, you know, more of that shorter nap. So you're not getting into the deeper stages of sleep. Um, and if you have a longer opportunity to go for more of that 90 minute or so and try to wake up naturally, maybe set a, set an emergency alarm. Um, <laughs> but, you know, some athletes may find benefits with an hour nap and don't have as much sleep inertia going on. So, so I, I think, you know, I don't want to be like black or white here. Um, <laughs> there's a range that that will work for different types of athletes. Uh, anecdotally, uh, as a as a very um, consistent napper myself, I, I totally echo what you say. I, I prefer the really short naps. I generally don't have time for much longer. But if I do have an opportunity, I, I try to go for, you know, I try to let myself sleep if I'm super tired. And I find that a 90 minute plus nap really, really does help. But I have had that, that you know, the negative effects of that sleep inertia if I wake up after 45 to 60 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, but Dr. Bender, you mentioned the, uh, the phases of sleep uh, in your explanation of naps. Um, I'd like you to spend a little bit of time talking about those just so that our listeners uh, have some context for what those are, why they're important, and uh, sort of what the chronology of a typical night's sleep uh, looks like in terms of phases. Sure, absolutely. Um, so we start off in the lightest stage of sleep. So actually, before I get there, um, sleep is divided into non-REM sleep, so non-rapid eye movement sleep, and then REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep. And they're characterized, so REM is characterized by rapid eye movements. And there's actually been some work showing that um, 
if you're dreaming about a tennis match that your eyes will kind of move in the directions of where the ball is going. So there is some, a little bit of relationship between your dream and what your rapid eye movements look like. And REM is where the dreaming occurs. Although we can dream in any stage of sleep, REM is where you wake up from a dream and you remember it, you know, you're in the dream. It's like real life. Um, but we can dream in other stages of sleep. It's just, um, it's just a little bit different. It's not like that movie that you're in. And then we have the non-REM sleep. So it's, divided into non-REM and REM sleep. So non-REM is composed of stage one, which is the lightest stage of sleep, stage two, which takes up about 50% of our sleep time across the night, and then stage three, which is where we have, uh, where it's hardest to wake someone up. You know, you're hmm. you're really low, uh, not alert at all. Um, and this is where growth hormone is being released, tissues are being repaired, um, actually, memory is is important during that stage as well. And non-REM occurs throughout throughout the night, but that stage three, that deepest stage of sleep, is occurring with each sleep cycle, but it's mostly occurring in the first half of the night, whereas REM sleep is occurring within each sleep cycle, but it starts off small at the beginning of the night, and then those REM periods get bigger and bigger as the night goes on. So... Um, generally, we preserve most of our non-REM or our deepest stage of sleep. So if we're getting, let's say we normally get eight hours, you know, we're probably getting most of that uh, deepest stage of sleep within the first five hours. And hmm. then if you're waking up early, you're likely cutting off some of that REM sleep that you would normally get. And I noticed this with myself. Uh, when I was, you know, during, I'm still working from home at this point, And so I don't have to commute into work. I'm going to bed a little bit later and I'm sleeping in a little bit later and getting more sleep in general. And I notice I'm being able to remember my dreams more because I think I'm just having more REM at the end of my sleep period. So that's interesting for people to know as well. And other than the, uh, <clears throat> the that's that stage three uh, deep sleep where you have um, growth hormone released uh, for for performance, are any of the stages any more relevant than any others, or is it just you know you you're you're still mostly looking at that quantity um, because then your body is likely to get all the all that it needs from sleep. Mm-hmm. That's a really good question. Um, generally, I. I think of it in terms of quantity and our, our body regulates the different stages as dependent on how our day goes as well. So for example, if I have a really hard exercise session, I'm likely to have more deep sleep because my tissues need repaired from that. Mm. Um, potentially if I'm really cognitively have a high cognitive load, you know, I may have more dreaming sleep, you know, so it, uh, and with caffeine, I may have more uh, sleep disturbance during the night. I may have less uh, deep sleep. So what we do during the day does impact how we regulate or, you know, go through these different stages across the night. Um, so, but, but I tend, but you can't really control that too much. I mean, we can optimize getting lots of light in the morning, we can limit our caffeine intake, we can exercise, all those are going to improve our overall sleep quality. But um, it's not like we can control 
um, yeah, okay, that's going to make me get more REM sleep. So I think it's just best for people to, to understand like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try to aim to get seven and a half, eight hours. And then, you know, the distribution of stages may look different depending on what I'm doing throughout the day. And um, I didn't mention also that, you know, we cycle from non-REM to REM and, and 90 to 110 minutes, but we repeat that all throughout the night. So in general, we're having about four to five different sleep cycles occurring throughout the night. Um, and again, with that REM getting bigger and those REM periods getting longer as the night uh, goes on. So I'm personally someone who suffers a lot from waking up throughout the night. How would that affect the different sleep cycles that I'm going into? Well, when I, I actually, for my dissertation, I worked with uh, smokers trying to quit and we compared their data to a control group. And we found that they had more awakenings during the night, which led to more uh, stage one sleep. So that lightest stage of sleep. So with more awakenings, we typically will see more stage one sleep, um, but they're, but you're able to get kind of back into it. So you, you may um, wake up during the middle of the night. You may, you know, have one period, one little 30 second episode of stage one, but then you're able to kind of, if you were in REM, you may be able to easily go back into REM. So you don't necessarily have to start over from the beginning but there may be more lighter stages of sleep if someone is waking up a lot throughout the night. So that's, I guess, somewhat similar to the sleep inertia concept, right? Where because you haven't maybe fully woken up, your body is more prepared to re-enter that deeper stage. Yes, absolutely. Uh, on the subject of uh, of sleep disruptions, I think this is a, a really useful uh, you know line of questioning for our listeners. So let's go through some of the more common ones. And Andrew mentioned that uh, you know that he wakes up frequently. I sometimes have this problem, and I kind of anecdotally associate it with stress, be it lifestyle stress or, or training stress. Specifically, if I'm if I do a, a heavy session um, close to bedtime, which I try to as much as possible to avoid these days, but I'll I'll sometimes have a case where I'll wake up well before wake up time, and I really struggle to fall back asleep. Um, so and obviously that affects the quantity of my sleep and and I imagine the quality as well. Uh, is there anything to be done if you're you know if you want to wake up at six and you find yourself awake at three or four mm-hmm. and not 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 naturally being able to fall asleep? That's the caveat. Stress definitely has an impact on our sleep cycle, so it it can be a vicious cycle actually because you know you may be uh, feeling stressed out. And then that leads to kind of these hormones related to really high levels of alertness. So it makes it more challenging mm. to fall asleep at night. You know, you can't switch off. This may create a, a sleep deficit by either, you know, waking up too early or and then the vicious cycle kind of just start, starts all over again. So there are many different things you can do. And actually, I have a few techniques specifically for waking up during the middle of the night that I personally use. And, um, I tell all my athletes that I work with as well. So one of them, I really want to hear these. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think, um, number one, having a good pre-sleep routine 
is going to help you relax and prepare for bedtime. So you can't just kind of work, you know, work on emails, work, (laughs) work on everything right up until bedtime. You need a period of unwinding. So that's, that's important for people to try, um, potentially an hour before bedtime, put away the electronic devices, take a warm bath or shower, which has been shown to help people fall asleep quicker because our temperature temporarily increases, but then plummets, which is what happens when we fall asleep. So taking a warm Mm -hmm. bath or shower, doing stretching, reading a paper book has been shown to kind of activate that parasympathetic nervous system, our relaxation system, uh, writing a to-do list, so offloading some of those thoughts um, on paper before you go to bed is going to help you, you know, sleep a little bit more soundly. And so it starts, you know, obviously during the day, stress management, um, and then with that pre-sleep routine, I think will will help people if they're not doing that currently. Now, when it comes to waking up during the middle of the night. Um, doing some breathing techniques help activate the parasympathetic nervous system as well. So there's the four, seven, eight breathing where you breathe in for four seconds, hold your breath for seven seconds, and then breathe out for eight seconds. So it's called four, seven, eight, and you repeat that four times. And I think the, the most important part of that is that you're breathing out longer than you're breathing in. And that helps activate the parasympathetic nervous system. So another one would be snake breathing, which my daughter came home. She's in uh, grade one and they taught her this at school where you just breathe in and then you hiss out like a snake. And that it's like, and you're breathing out longer than you're breathing in. So that kind of helps you relax a little bit. So I would start with some breathing techniques um, such as those, and then try some cognitive techniques as well. So there is the cognitive shuffle. So you think of a word such as bedtime. You imagine all all the objects that you can, starting with the first letter, B, ball, baby, banana, bus, bag. When you can't think of any more objects, you move on to the next letter, E, eagle, egg, ear. And by the time you get to the end of the word, hopefully you'll be sound asleep. (laughs) Um, And I also did a variation with my kids where we think of a color. So, you know, sometimes they'll, they'll say, "Ah, I can't go to sleep, you know, so I'll say, okay, well, let's do color. And they think of a color and then they imagine all the objects that they can with, with that color. So red would be strawberry, raspberry, even like red chair, red shirt, red marker, you know, and it, it simulates what we do when we fall asleep. So that's one benefit is it's kind of simulating these, you know, images that we see when we're falling asleep. And then the second benefit is that you're not, so pissed off, you know, you're, you're, you're not so pissed off that you're awake <laughs> and you're, you know, your mind is focused on something else. So that's another kind of benefit. And then I would say, you know, I've tried this myself and still I can't go to sleep. So you want to get up out of bed after about 20 minutes. You don't want to stare at the clock you want to get up out of bed, go do a relaxing activity in low light, maybe read a paper book um, in a completely new environment, and then only return back to bed when you're sleepy, because we don't want to start associating our bed with being awake. Mm 
So that's really important too, is to, huh. yeah, get out of bed and then only return when you're sleepy. And that goes for, you know, also when you're going to bed at night, you know, you don't want to go to bed if you're wide awake, because then you're laying there for 60 minutes and you're going to start associating your bed with being awake. Those are amazing. I love the, uh, I love the updated counting sheep uh, strategy also. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yeah. That one I'm definitely going to try. Yeah, yeah because it gives your brain something to do, right? Because you're, you know, otherwise you're, you know, you're, you're, you're planning or worrying, right, about mm -hmm. stuff you've done or stuff you need to do. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, and this is a way to to make give it give it another job, brain. Yes, yes. I don't, I don't typically. Uh, the counting sheep isn't in my repertoire anymore. I have all these other better <laughs> techniques. It's been updated. Yes. <laughs> yes. Let's talk a little bit about. Um, the quality of sleep, and we, we talked about uh, all the different sleep stages. So I want to focus on uh, whether or not there is anything that we can do to to kind of quantify the quality of our sleep, for lack of a better way of saying it. And by that I mean, you know, are we are is it useful to think of how we feel after our sleep, or or you know how we perceive that quality of sleep? Uh, and are there any devices that are commercially available outside of, you know, a sleep lab and an EEG setup uh, that can be useful in doing this? And the kind of the the wrap up on this question is, is it even useful to start to try to um, determine the quality of our sleep? Uh, quality is really important. Um, I guess we could start with kind of what the definition of good quality sleep is. Um, okay. And so that would be falling asleep in less than 30 minutes. It'd be waking up no more than once per night and being awake for less than about 20 minutes um, during the night after initially falling asleep. And then sleeping 85% of the time while they're in bed. So an example of that might be someone who goes to bed at 11 p.m. Let's say they fall asleep at 11.20. They may wake up at 3 a.m. to use the bathroom, but they're back to sleep at 3.15 and then waking up for uh -huh. the day at 7 a.m., let's say. And so this person would be sleeping about seven and a half hours. They'd be falling asleep in less than 30 minutes. They'd be waking up only once per night and then back to sleep and then would be sleeping over 90% of the time that they're, they're in bed. So that's something for people to aim for. And if they're continually not getting that, um, you know, it may be time to go seek help from a sleep specialist. I think mm -hmm. that's important for people to know as well as, you know, you don't want to try and solve all these sleep issues on your own. You don't want to chronically live with insomnia or sleep apnea. Definitely seek help from a sleep professional if this is becoming a chronic issue. So um, yeah, that's, that's kind of the definition of what sleep quality looks like. As far as improving sleep quality, Exercise is going to, you know, which your audience doesn't have an issue with, but that helps improve, <laughs> helps improve sleep quality overall. Limiting caffeine intake. For me, I'm a decaf drinker. I, I wasn't. During graduate school, I would chug down the coffee. Um, and it yeah. wasn't until my youngest, so I have three kids, was about six months old, you know, up until that point, I was still drinking a ton of caffeine. And I finally was like, all right, I want to see what happens when I go off the caffeine and see how my sleep quality may improve. And 
it was amazing for me, although it was complete torture, you know, those first two weeks that I was off the caffeine, um, I noticed a huge improvement in sleep quality. And so that's something, you know, people could try or at least try and limit caffeine, you know, not drink any past noon. Um, Mm -hmm. But quality, it can be tricky to kind of gauge. So um, speaking of caffeine, there was a study where they gave teenagers an energy drink at dinner time, and they asked them, you know, how how did... the the poor parents of those teenagers? Come on, <laughs> that asked, seems cruel and unusual. Yeah, they asked them, well, how do you do you think this impacted your sleep? And they said, no, I mean, no, I didn't notice the difference. And they looked huh. at their sleep objectively, and they found that they were they were still able to fall asleep pretty quickly. There was no difference in that. Um, you know, they weren't necessarily waking up a ton more during the night. But when they looked at their distribution of sleep stages, they found that they were getting 20 minutes less of the deepest stage of sleep. So um, quality can be kind of tricky because, you know, you may not realize um, how poor of quality sleep you're getting by, you know, how you feel in the morning, for example. And for me, you know, um, if... So alcohol is another thing can impact quality. So if I have a glass of wine at dinner or maybe even too close to bedtime, let's say, you know, 7 p.m., um, I'll notice that the next day I'll feel a lot sleepier during the day. And my husband will tell me, be like, yeah, you were snoring last night. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I think it can be, it can be tricky to gauge your overall sleep quality, but I think what's more relevant is how you feel during the day. So are you able to function without a pot of coffee every day? You know, are you able to wake up without an alarm clock? Are you able to just feel alert during the day? And that's probably a good sign that you are getting good quality sleep. So the the lack of caffeine is something that I've tried recently. I used to be, my friends will know this, but I used to be a pretty prolific coffee drinker. Uh, and caffeine, it seemed like it had almost no effect on me where I could have a, a cup of coffee after dinner. And maybe it was having that deeper impact on the the, the stages of sleep, but it wouldn't affect mm-hmm. me falling asleep and, and waking up. But I have made that switch. But um, yeah, it's, it's something that... Um, I think just looking at the the bigger picture, like setting yourself up for the the best possible quality of sleep is so beneficial. Like whether it's making a little bit of a sacrifice in terms of your habits, so like changing the caffeine intake or changing your activity schedule and being able to just set the stage for for high quality sleep that night. Certainly, yes. It's it's really important. And you know, a lot of people ask me, um, is quality more important than quantity and timing? And um, it's hard to say at this point, I would lean more towards quality. So if, and this is completely, you know, my opinion, but I think, you know, if you have an opportunity for seven hours of good quality sleep versus eight hours of, you know, poor quality sleep where you had a bunch of caffeine right up until bedtime, Um, I think that quality is that seven hours of quality sleep is going to be more beneficial for people. As far as uh, you mentioned um, devices, are there any devices that Mm -hmm. help 
improve quality. There, there is some kind of up and coming devices that you wear like a headband and it will help improve your deep sleep and it'll help um, the use oh, audio. Yeah. They actually use audio. So they, they have to know when you're in that deepest stage of sleep and then they'll use audio to try and um, create kind of a, a deeper wave and more increased deep sleep. And they're using this for people with dementia. They're using it for people with depression you know, so it's a really up and coming technology and showing good promise that if they can enhance these slow waves and this deep sleep, that it does show benefits for people when it comes to memory and mood. So another point you mentioned was, uh, well, related to drinking, but um, having a partner who who snores or disrupts your own <laughs> sleep. Are you finding, just from anecdotally talking to people, are you finding that there are more people pursuing maybe different options like sleeping in separate beds or separate rooms. Is that becoming a, a trend or is that something that people are not willing to sacrifice on? We are finding that to be more of a trend. So a lot of time, yeah, there's, you know, houses that are being developed with like two master bedrooms for, for that purpose so that people can, you know, have their own sleeping area and their partner is not disturbing their sleep. So yeah, we do see that to be a trend and even um, having like two twin beds together and having like separate sheets to so that if you if you have a partner that steals the covers a lot, you won't, <laughs> you won't be impacted by that as much. <laughs> Right. And I know that's a really popular thing in Europe. Like if you go to a hotel there, it's often a double bed you'll get with two separate duvets. And personally, I love it. Um, mm -hmm. Having been the recipient of uh, of cover stealing <laughs> yes. in the past, it's something I can yes. appreciate. Plus one for separate sheets. <laughs> we have separate pillows. Why don't we have separate sheets? I know. Yeah, yeah. yeah why not? Um, and, you know, snoring, I, I want to talk about snoring because it's, it's a serious issue. And even, you know, 50% of snorers have sleep apnea, where you stop breathing during the middle of the night. And this is, this is associated with many, many, many different health problems. So if you are a regular snorer, if your partner notices that you're stopping breathing during the night, this is definitely something that you will want to get checked out by a sleep professional. And the treatment for that is the gold standard treatment is um, continuous positive airway pressure, so CPAP, um, which is a machine that you wear that opens up the airway. And a lot of people get turned off by that, but there are oral appliance devices as well where you wear a mouth guard and it can help open up your airway. So there are alternatives hmm. to um, CPAP for people who have sleep apnea. And it's not just about, as you mentioned, it's not just about your own health concerns, but if you're snoring loudly, you're disturbing your partner's sleep as well, which can lead to problems. So it's definitely something that um, you want to get help with. Dr. Bender, uh, as we're coming up on our time limit, I realized that an hour is nowhere near enough to, <laughs> to do a proper job of talking about this. I still have a half dozen of these questions and some of which I've, I've jotted oh, down. Yeah, just from, from things you've said that I wanted to follow up on. 
Um, I want to talk about body temperature. I want to talk about, you know, staying in bed, all sorts of things. Um, but, you know, being respectful of your of your time um, and your your other commitments, of course, I think we should uh, we should try to get you back on the show, especially, you know, after you have some uh, some maybe new and exciting things to talk about um, in your in your future endeavors. Um, so at this point, I think uh, let's let's leave it. Let's leave it here for now. And uh, if you're willing, we would uh, love to have you back on the show another time. That would be great. Yes. Let's do a part two. And even, you know, some of your listeners can after they hear this episode can kind of chime in with with questions that they have as well. And then we can we can do a part two down the road. In the uh, in the interest of keeping it thematic, should we call it stage two? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, stage two. Stage two, I like it. <laughs> you are on a roll, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, yeah, we'll, but... Uh... We'll call it good. Um, Dr. Bender, before we go, I want to um, recommend to our listeners that uh, sleep questionnaire that I've mentioned that I use with, uh, with my folks. Um, where can people find it and where can people learn more about you and your research and what you're up to? The sleep questionnaire, it's called the athlete sleep screening questionnaire. You can get it at centerforsleep.com. We can probably, you guys could put a, a link in the show notes. Um, and 100%. yes, it's a questionnaire that I helped optimize and, um, basically it'll give you sleep education tips based on how you respond to the answers It'll identify if you need to see a sleep specialist. So definitely it's free, freely available. Uh, so check that out. And again, you'll be able to get uh, sleep education and information, probably a lot that we talked about today on um, how to properly sleep better as an athlete. So that's, that's something for people to check out. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at this point at sleep for sport. So people can catch me there. I'm also developing a website, uh, sleepwelltowin.com. It's not quite ready. I'm hoping in the next month or so, maybe in, in stage two at that <laughs> point, uh, it'll be ready for, for that interview. This has been a great talk so far. Um, I feel like there's like you said, Michael, there's so many questions I have still, and hopefully our listeners come in with some good questions as well, because I think this is a topic that just needs so much focus and really people aren't giving it the proper time and attention right now, I'd say. Agreed. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you. Listeners, as always, thank you so much for uh, spending some of your time with us. Um, if you like the show, please do give us a rating uh, and a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. And uh, as Andrew and uh, Dr. Bender suggested, please do submit any questions you may have. Just uh, shoot them to us over email or, or any of our social channels. And in, uh, in stage two, we'll, uh, we'll throw them at Amy and uh, uh, ask her to you know, give us her insights. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. Thank you very much and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. You too.